This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We start out with uh, like true crime news, but this is really a continuation of a conversation we were having that we sort of um, have been having. Um, we've been talking about these Epona cases in Canada, and there was a, there was a set of cases going on time wise that sort of mimic the time frame of the Epona. Although Epona sort of has a sprawling, um, I think it starts in 1969 or so. And like the most recent case up there is like 2006. Uh, this case that we briefly touched on is not quite as uh, sprawling. Uh, the Ghost of Highway 20, um, that sort of runs from about 1977 to 1992. And they consider it to be sort of, I don't, I don't want to say closed, but not um, like it, it's, it's sort of solved. There's a documentary that I had had you watch after I sort of posited a little bit of this information. And as I'm known to do, I sprung this on you. Um, but uh, did you get a chance to watch uh, the documentary? I did. Okay. So the documentary is actually produced by the Oregonian, which is a daily newspaper that's based out of Portland, Oregon. Um, it's one of the oldest newspapers on the West coast. It was founded in like the 1850s by a guy named Thomas Dreyer and it's published daily ever since then. And what they did was they ran multiple pieces uh, by a woman by the name of uh, Noel Crombie. Uh, I think there were five pieces. There might've been a wrap up in there. And these pieces were called the ghost of highway 20. And then they also did a documentary uh, related to the ghost of highway 20. And they sort of encompassed a, a lot of different things. They, they encompassed uh, the Neiman news was in there. They talked about the Doe network. Uh, the Charlie project is in there. Oregon live is a part of it. Statesman journal, Carvalis um, Gazette times, um, all these different newspapers, including like the, I think the Albany Democrat Herald um, local to that area they, they sort of pull all this information together, including a lot of public records, and they put together a pretty tight documentary about a guy named John Arthur Aykroyd. I was convinced early on that we were dealing with a serial killer. He's always been a demon in my life, lurking in the back of my head. There have been times people take people out, kill them, bury them. There's other times where they've taken them out and just throw them on the ground after they got through. She probably ran, he got his gun out. What are the odds of being a prime suspect in all these murders? Officials say they do not expect to find the girl alive. His eyes would change color and he says, I want to kill someone. He knew that area. He worked for the, the highway department. He was a hunter. Yeah, hunters doesn't necessarily restrict it to animals. He knew that area pretty well, didn't he? Like the back of his hand. I know this road. Back on my head. Same with the stations, only FM Farms and truck stops, fireworks stands. Yeah, I know this road like the back of my head. Look what happens. Look what happens. I hear I'm the only freaking survivor. So, John. Arthur Aykroyd is a predator. Um, we're going to talk about what level predator he is today. He is definitely a murderer in terms of like the legal sense. Um, and he's suspected to have been a serial killer. Um, but he, he's an unusual, in a couple of ways, he's an unusual predator. 
Uh, now, I will, I'll say up front that in uh, December of 2016, John Arthur Aykroyd died at the age of 67 in the Oregon State Penitentiary up in Salem, Oregon. He has one living victim, and he is suspected to have two uh, murdered victims. Um, and then there's tangential evidence of another, a double homicide in 1992. So let me just start out by asking, what did you think of the, the documentary, the way everything was put together and kind of the presentation of it all? I liked it. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know if I should say I like it to something of that subject matter, but um, I thought it was good. Yeah, I thought it was pretty well presented. Um, they do a pretty good uh, job of balancing, like, the investigators talking. Uh, they have one of the victims talking. They have several of the victims' family members talking. Um, it's a very – it's a long story, uh, and I will link to the Oregonians uh, story, and I will link to the actual documentary um, that you can watch it here in uh, the show notes. I – I want to talk a little bit about the documentary itself and then John Arthur Aykroyd, John Arthur Aykroyd. And then I want to talk about how it has sort of some similarities to the Epona cases. Now, uh, do you think he's a serial killer? Like when you look at uh, John Aykroyd? He is. Well, he's definitely a killer. Uh, see, I, I just, I don't I, I don't want to say like no, I don't think he's a serial killer because I don't know if that lessens his like what happened to his victims, but uh sort of the way the story plays out, I don't really think he's what I consider to be a serial killer. It like that doesn't mean I wouldn't change my mind. Uh you know, this is a fairly sort of I mean, I don't know everything there is to know about this guy, right? Um, yeah. I've sort of looked into um, a few sources. And what do you think? Do you think he's a well, serial killer? Well, so this case comes up because of similarities to the Canadian case. It comes up because, as you know, I have a thing for this area in Oregon where people have disappeared. That kind of There's a couple of people out there that were definitely predators. Um, that I've, I've long been fascinated by their cases. And I wanted to take a look at this case because I can't figure this guy out. Now, the way that they get to him being a serial killer is, so he has in, in 1977, he has a living victim named Marlene and she talks in this documentary. Um, and she gives like a really specific account of how she gets away from John Aykroyd. It, it's, it's pretty fascinating to listen to and it has some things in common with the e-pana cases because marlene is a, a native american she's an, an indigenous indigenous american and the way that she describes her story and what happened between them is absolutely terrifying and i think i think it's always worth listening to victim stories not necessarily for like all the accuracy of the life of the the person they encountered but because of like the details in the firsthand accounting of it. Obviously she's not dead. So she's a victim, but that doesn't lump into him being a serial killer. But the idea that they have here is that she is like the first victim and she sort of humanizes herself very similarly to what we saw in some of the other cases we've covered this spring I don't know if um, we've talked quite a bit about this um, in the weeks leading up to when this is going to air. And I don't know if we talked about it or if it made it on the show. But um, I did find out in the documentary that uh, she did not know him. Uh, I had questioned that earlier. Again, don't know if it's going to, you know, make it to the show. But I said, well, are they acquaintances, right? Yeah. Um, because ultimately she's looking for a ride home. And uh, that was cleared up in the documentary from her story. She was, um, they, they were out having a good time. Uh, she had, uh, it was the first night she had had a babysitter to get away from her, like, very young baby. 
And uh, she says herself that like she was, you know, acting silly and doing something she shouldn't have been doing. And she, she, uh, she was underage, but she had been drinking and she got mad. And so she was looking around at this venue that they were at. I think it was like the sister's rodeo or something like that. And she finally found a guy with a pickup to take her home was what, that's what she was looking for. Cause her husband had made her mad her and she wanted to leave. That had been a big question when we were talking about this earlier was, well, did she know him? Cause I thought they were all, they were with some friends, but it didn't sound like this guy was her friend. Now also in the documentary, it's mentioned at some point, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but, and I know we're going to go through that whole story, but her husband um, did beat him up, right? Yes. And so I I don't know exactly, like, well, he, was he a complete unknown or was it like, I mean, it was somebody they could find later, right? Obviously. Yeah, it seemed like, it almost seemed like they ran in the same circles, Right. And so uh, she did, she did mention in the documentary, she felt comfortable enough to like get in this guy's truck and he, you know, she felt confident he was going to take her home. She also prefaces that, you know, she had been drinking and uh, it was, she, she said, you know, I shouldn't have been doing that. It was really stupid on my part. Um, And it, so that's kind of a, it's a gray area for me. Well, yeah. So, so we have her, we have her story, and then we have the story of uh, Christmas holiday of 1978 of a 35 year old woman named Kay Turner. That honestly, it's a really tragic story, and it it has some similarities to several of like these odd stories that we've covered through the years, including like Amy Bechtel. That's who I think of here. Um, although Amy's a little younger, Kay Turner is a runner. And she literally goes out on, you know, like her her morning run on Christmas Eve of 1978. And she has a run-in with Aykroyd. They were – she wasn't at home, right? They were on a trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had – so she takes this trip with her husband and their friends to a place called Camp Sherman. And that's one of the reasons I sort of like compare it to uh, the the Wyoming case. She's she's away. She's – not at home, although she's actually on a trip. Um, they're from Eugene, and they've gone up to Camp Sherman, and they're she's literally just getting up to go exercise, and she doesn't come back, and her husband does all the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, he gets the police involved. There's a pretty massive uh, search. They they zoom in on the husband, um, Kay Turner's husband. Because she had had extramarital affairs. Now they, they found out she had been with like uh, two different guys on like little trips very recently, right? Yeah, yeah. And the there's a lot of interesting aspects to the Turner case. Um, include so this is one of those things where you have to place everything in time. So this would have been a year and a half after the incident with Marlene being raped by John Aykroyd, but surviving. So now that's in 77. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's really important to point out, um, you know, like you said, in 77, when Marlene had her encounter with him, uh, she did go to the police. The police took her story. The police, I believe they interviewed him and nothing was done. Correct. It was a he said, she said, even though she, you know, got a rape kit done and there were signs of a sexual assault, um, he pretty much said, well, you know, she wanted it. And, um, you know, he, he just disputed everything. And at the end of the day, she had willingly gotten to the vehicle with him and he had taken her home at the end of it all or taking her wherever she asked him to go. Yeah. Right. Now I fault the investigators uh, specifically in this instance. I feel like while some cases like that are brought and, and they're he said, she said type things, I think with the evidence that was available, 
um, as far as like the rape kit situation. Um, and there was mention of a knife being involved and that he admitted the knife was there. I think that would have been enough evidence that it should have moved forward and somebody besides law enforcement should have decided who they believed. But that's neither here nor there except for what keeps happening. But I do feel like him getting away with that bolsters it. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I feel like that's important in time and space because he did this to her. I And I a thousand percent believe her. She wasn't lying, right? Correct. And it bolstered his confidence, I feel like, because he got away with it. Yeah, that, that's, sort of, that's sort of what I wanted to point out was it's almost like he started to have uh, this sort of invincible feeling is what I'm picturing. Um, this guy is not the, the brightest dude. Uh, but he is like he he works. He's working for um, he's essentially they, they say highway mechanic. But I want to clarify the description of his job is that he is essentially on all these different routes for the state. He's working for the state and he does a wide variety of things. It actually sounded like really familiar to me when I was listening to them talk about him, I was picturing sort of what Keyes described having done up on the Yakima reservation when he worked for the reservation in Parks and Rec and he was doing construction and he was at all these different places. It's very similar to that. He's just doing it for the highway department of the state of Oregon. Um, right. It sounded uh, like when there would be like a stranded motorist or like just a variety of sort of like it, it's not really a handyman, but it's like a it's a jack of all trades at kind of a low level, right? Yeah. Like, you know, somebody runs out of gas, you know, they help people that are um, stranded motorists, which it may. Now, that part, I, I do want to look a little more into that aspect of possible things that occurred, right? Yeah. The, but, I, I, it made it made me do the same thing. There, so in the documentary, one person mentions, and I think he was either a supervisor or he might have been a coworker. Um, but it sounded like, at, at least at one point, there was a supervisory position between this guy and Ackroyd because he says, "I took Ackroyd to the scene of uh, an accident, a cleanup, and I'm pretty sure he said that there was a deceased person in the car." He wanted to see how Ackroyd interacted with this deceased person. And he was, he, he says he was shocked by what happened there um, and how calm and collected and sort of flippant Ackroyd was when they were dealing with uh, sort of being a liaison between the first responders and the coroner because the scene had to be cleaned up in order for them to retrieve the body. And, you know, so Ackroyd ends up doing it. I thought that was interesting. He stood out to me in this. Well, sure. Right. Um, and, you know, we know more about this guy. And this was like a story in hindsight, sort of. But so I didn't know, like, if he was telling it from hindsight. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I, I try not to put too much stock. I know. I, I thought the people, same thing. How people react to things. Because I, I, I feel just the way I am and my experience and then some of the people around me and knowing them really well and what they've experienced, I could face some really shocking situations and I could be very calm about it externally. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that does not mean anything, right? I'm very, um, conscientious and I feel like you are too like some yeah. things that would really shock some people I breathe my way through them <laughs> and you probably and people might say like well she didn't respond right right that doesn't mean that I didn't respond right in my head it's just I outwardly you know because I'm a, an emotional type person and when I was young I would cry at everything right and as I got older I learned that like you don't cry at everything that doesn't mean I don't feel like crying and that's just an example but I try not to put too much stock in like how somebody reacts but I do understand what the guy was saying right yeah and I you know it's true crime so I'm always kind of questioning like 
it, it, ha- it would be the same effect as like, you know, how the past is revered, which you and I point out a lot. The idea would be like, could have done something. I will say that guy stood out to me, but more than anyone, Marlene stood out to me because she had some serious survivor's guilt, even in the interview she did for this piece. Many, many years later, she thought if she had done something differently, said something differently, and the police had taken her seriously, that there would have been a possibility that some of these women might have survived. And that is an incredibly uh, hard position for her to have been in. And that affected me even just watching her like talk about it because she's right. If, if she had been taken seriously with that rape and he had been, you know, convicted and sentenced, I do believe Kate Turner would be alive. If nothing else from the fact that it would spoil the timeline. Well, and he wouldn't have gotten away with it is, is the whole thing there. I think, um, I feel like, uh, more than anything, uh, and, you know, uh, like we said, it was in the spring of uh, 77. We have just recently talked about how, uh, you know, sexual assaults and rapes were not taken seriously enough, you know, in, well, I say the 80s because that was what I was sort of familiar with. But it's taken a really long time um, for it to be like, oh, wow, that's like, you know, an actual crime, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing this documentary does, which I always, uh, I don't know that enjoy is the best word, but I appreciate it, um, was they had his recorded interviews, right? Um, we actually get to hear John Ackroyd talking. Yeah. And when I was listening, I couldn't really tell if he was serious in his account of what happened between him and Marlene, like, did he really think like what he was doing was okay? Cause even as he's talking with the investigators to profess that it was a consensual encounter to me, it oozed the fact that like that would not have been accepted today. Right. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things that were once considered like, Oh, well, you know, this is a, consensual situation that she regret regretted after the fact right yeah Um, she was intoxicated to the point she wanted to go home that's enough right there right (laughs) for it to be an issue and so i i think that she i don't know that she lives with a lot of guilt i i have a ton of respect for her sitting down uh this documentary uh i don't know if it's aired anywhere um (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was covering it here and going to start pointing people to it is because I can't find like a good like I, so I can find it online. I can look at it. I clearly shared it with you, but I can't find that it's gotten a good audience anywhere. So I wanted to talk about it and some of the important things sure. that they cover. I don't even know if they understood the impact that documentary has when when they released it. They might have understood some of it, but I don't think they understood I, the whole thing. I believe that the um the maker the the person who organized it and produced it and did all this i i think she probably did right yeah um, yeah but she was sort of grasping at you know this world of true crime that just everything gets swallowed up sometimes right yeah. um and this is incredibly uh it 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 should in my th- my thought was um we did watch it on youtube and um, you know, YouTube can be hit or miss for things like <laughs> they can be really great. This is a very high quality thing, in my opinion, on YouTube. Um, yes, it is. It could absolutely be on any other network and it would be worth watching. Right. Because, um, you know, with YouTube, sometimes it's like home videos. Right. I mean, I, I know I'm old for that. I get it. But this was a good this documentary should be on um you know, available, uh, somebody should pick it up and show it. It, it, the time was put into it and it was worthwhile. But, um, when Marlene is talking, I feel like she got a lot of information from participating in this. I, I, I don't think she necessarily followed John Ackroyd for the rest of his life as far as like what happened to him. 
right? And the things that he did, and um, I could tell that. I feel like, so. She's much older now, right? Um, the, it, her attack happened in '77, and she's 20 years old. So um, I feel like she was at a point where she could kind of digest the fact that like it wasn't her fault. She actually did everything she could. She went to the police, and but she was, you know, heartbroken about you know his victims that came after her. Yeah, she was. And I want to, so I want to touch on a couple of things that are in the documentary. So I had questions about the case of Kay Turner, where if Ackroyd is involved, and that's all I'm going to say here, because like legally speaking, yes, he is. But there's this, like, he basically gets a pass for 12 years. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But okay, I, I want to ask you just off the cuff, do you believe that he killed Kay Turner? I do. Okay, so Kay Turner, we had briefly touched on her like earlier well, in this episode you? in another episode. I I have questions about the death of Kay Turner, but not about Ackroyd necessarily. I just cannot figure out how he like so we were talking about his confidence building up from getting away with the assault on Marlene. And then, so it, it's a year and a half later, it's the Christmas holiday and Ackroyd manages to be involved, seen at the scene. Like he, he then like is interviewed about the death of Kay Turner. And it appears that he and another man named Roger Dale Beck, who is admittedly a friend of um, Ackroyd, who, but I will say Ackroyd talking to the local news throws Roger Dale Beck under the bus as the, the sole perpetrator, which I thought was weird that they had that clip. Right. Um, Cause it's very old. It's from 1979. And I was, I was, I was blown away that they had that. Um, however, Actually, I say it's from 1979. The incident is from 1979. And the latest the news clip could possibly be is like 1991, maybe. Um, but what's bizarre about this case is it happens in 1978. And in 1979, Ackroyd finds, I put that in giant air quotes, Kay Turner's remains in the woods. It's about a half mile off the road that she'd been running along, which points out some flaws in the search and rescue efforts. Um, she had been kidnapped and killed, according to, I don't know how they came to that conclusion. I'll say this. All they had at the end was Kay Turner's skull, and that always bothers me, um, if all they have is a skull, because you get into it. Yeah, all the bones were animal bones. What? All of the bones except for her skull turn out to be animal bones in the documentary. Okay, well, hold on, because... It's um, wild, right? Well, no, that's not what I got from that. <laughs> I'm sorry, and I'm not trying to contradict you. Um, it was a lot of information kind of uh, all at once because it, it is like a four-part thing, but I, I watched it all at once, right? Yeah. Um, my understanding was um, that in a later story that he told about finding – because you remember how he was saying, like, the smell was awful? You were um, correct, Yes. And he found bones, right? So there is no smell associated with bones. Um, and then he talks about finding her skull. But I thought I heard somebody say that, like, that wasn't initially, like, where it, where he found, you know, quote, found the remains, end quote, um, that her skull wasn't there. Um, so the way that it, well, yeah, there were remains there. What it was was there was really just clothing there, and they did find the skull and the mandible. Um, but the bones that they found with the clothing were ultimately determined to have been scattered animal bones. And the, cl the clothing was the important part because that is how they realized. So they come to the conclusion that she was kidnapped and killed because they felt like her clothing had been cut off of her. It wasn't picked at by animals, and it wasn't ruined by weathering um you know it's a year later but essentially they were able to determine that her jogging clothing had been cut and that was sort of 
uh, one of the things that made them interested. But this is the part that was infuriating. <laughs> they do nothing with that information. They did uh, absolutely nothing. Now, they do look at Aykroyd in 1978, 1979, particularly in 1979, because he's a witness at the scene in 78. And then in 1979, he finds the remains. He keeps inserting himself into this. Well, right. Um, so it was a, let's see, one highway worker. So a uh, a coworker or somebody who did sort of the same job as him, he saw a runner as well as he saw John Ackroyd. Right? Yeah, this is Thomas Hanna. He is someone who's familiar with John Ackroyd more than he would have been with the runner. Right, okay. And so, uh, so that places him in the vicinity the morning she was running, right? Right. Um, there's also a, another runner, Right. And she she's brought up in the documentary and um, she she went to like testify about the fact that like she was the other runner because during the investigation, people had seen a runner and the possibility was it was the other runner or it was Kay Turner. Right. And so she went to make that distinction for people. Right. Uh, because they only wanted they wanted information about who had seen Kay. Right. Right, and the other jogger information in the documentary is pretty fascinating, by the way. It is, and so she had an encounter with John Ackroyd. Yeah, she ends up really bolstering the case for him having killed Kay Turner, but she makes no mention of Roger Beck. I'm sorry, she wasn't running. She was on a bike. I'm sorry. There's another person out exercising. I thought she was a jogger as well. <laughs> Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I think I messed that up. I, I do believe she was running, but she talks about a different incident where she's on a bike. So where we end up with this is, in my opinion, okay, they bring in Ackroyd and they talk to him after the remains are recovered. And Ackroyd's explanation for the smell thing is, I actually saw those remains a while ago. It was more like February and I smelled them, but I didn't report it at the time. So, how long what do you think it would? That? That's what I don't know. That's what he says. He says I didn't report it back then. The, so, what the investigator says, because there's a couple of investigators involved that talk in this documentary. What they think he was doing was they think he had decided, you know what, I'm gonna double down on this and try and get the reward. I'm gonna right. tell them where the body is, and once they close that, I'll get the reward. That's what they thought he was thinking. Um, cause they were gonna, you know, I think in Ackroyd's head, he was going to point to Roger Dale Beck. Now there is some damning evidence that comes up against Roger Dale Beck in the documentary, but I just want to say this. They do nothing for 11 years. Nothing. That's correct. So when we initially talked about this, I, I hadn't watched the documentary yet and, I was going off of sort of what was available to, for me to read about. And I had thought perhaps Ackroyd wasn't involved. Um, there is a an alibi witness, uh, which is, it's Beck's wife, our former wife, right? Pamela Beck, yeah. Um, and so she, after they get divorced, she lets uh, authorities know that, like, the alibi she had given him was a lie, right? Yeah. And she gives them additional information about what actually happened that day. Um, if you'll recall in the documentary, they, they mention that it's it's Christmas time and uh, Roger Dale Beck didn't have uh, food to eat. Um, and they were going out hunting for deer, so they would have deer meat, venison, right? Right. And... I immediately thought to myself, it is so unlikely that he would have, because um, he had children, right? Children that were hungry. Um, why would he be thinking about murder, right? Those two things were just, it sort of clashed in my mind. And then, of course, with the ex-wife coming forward and her story, I mean, it was what it was. And I'm not saying she's lying. I do, however, uh, make note in my mind of the investigator that was 
uh, talking. So he kind of illustrates one of the things I've talked about over time where they've got, they know a case is solved, but they don't have the evidence to adjudicate it. Right. He says like, we knew who did this. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, without more information, there was nothing they could do, but he mentions that, um, because there was something about her, her running tracks, her because Nike was a, a new shoe. She had a waffle pattern to the shoe. And so they were able to say, like, this was her running path, right? Yep. And they could tell that it was one it was one set of her running shoes and the path she had taken. And then there was like work boots and there was one set of work boots, right? Yeah. There were deep work boots tracked indicating a larger person in work boots and they assumed larger man. Um, and it looked like at that scene that there had been a scuffle and that the person with the Nike shoes, their tracks discontinued. And like they were then- picked up. Or, and, or drug or whatever. Yeah, and then all there were was drag marks away from that area. Right, and so to me, like, that's one person getting her, right? Right. And so I felt like, and, you know, we talked about how he wasn't the brightest bulb. Um, definitely not the brightest bulb. But I think that he did go out um, hunting with Beck. Now, and Beck was not, like... He wasn't an angel, right? Um, but, you know, right. this is about John Ackroyd. But I think that he was using him as a scapegoat. Now, earlier I said I felt like maybe John Ackroyd um, was not involved in that. But, like, after I watched the documentary, I realized, you know, somebody saw him in the vicinity that day. He found her body. And then because he was talking about a smell that wouldn't have been there with the bones, he makes up this story about um, how she um, he had found her body earlier in the year, but didn't report it. And right. this guy, like, went. I, this is my speculation. He went back there and watched her uh, decompose. Oh, he definitely did. He went back to the scene, and that's what that's what we're getting out of. And it's his interviews that give that away. It's I think not- so too. And they, they found at the scene of uh, where her remains were found, um, there were enough dental records that, uh, I mean, enough dental, you said the mandible. I remember seeing the teeth and they had matched it, right? Yeah. Um, but some birds had made a nest. Out pulling, of blonde hair. Pulling her hair out as, you know, she, she uh, was, you know, going back to dust basically. Um, but I felt like, uh, that was just, uh, it was something, but so this guy, you know, that type of thing definitely makes me lean more towards like the serial killer type. Right. Yeah. The going back to the body is, it's a strange thing that is done and is known to be, um, you know, it's a way for them to, to assuage the idea of killing someone else for a period of time. That's the idea behind it. Uh, they do you, do, go ahead. Why do you think that he ultimately gave up the remains? He wanted the reward. He wanted the money from the reward. That, that was his idea there. He thought he was going to get away with it. It had been long enough. There was no evidence of him there. He had been to the scene many times and he had realized that most of the bones were gone. Um, but the skull was still there and her, her clothing was still there. And he thought at that point in time he would be safe to try and get the, uh, the reward for her, uh, for the missing person's reward. That's what he wanted. He wanted the money. That's crazy to me. So I, I, I said, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, like, so they do nothing about this. I'm coming back around to this fact. They do I, nothing about he, this. He, so he gets away with it again for a period of time. Yeah. Okay. And I want to point out that from the time he gets away with Marlene and this until the next incident, there are 46 missing women in Oregon. Still to this day unknown what happened to 46 different 
women. I think some of them may be underage. I don't have the like sitting in front of me, but I wouldn't like look that up to see if I could like link anyone. Uh, there are a number of cases they suspect that um, Ackroyd is involved in, uh, including Swamp Mountain Jane Doe, who is not on my list of 46 missing women. Um, but the, the three people that like they sort of pin on him. Okay, the first one we talked about briefly, and I apologize because I mispronounced her name. I didn't know it until I went back to the documentary. But her name is Richanda Pickle. She is um, – so Ackroyd somehow gets married in the 1980s. Um, he's got a stable job, and he marries a woman named Linda Pickle. Um, and she has two kids. Uh, Richanda and Byron Pickle are her kids. They are terribly poor. Terribly, terribly, terribly poor. So Linda being married to Ackroyd does a lot for their financial status, which I think when that happens, um, sometimes people don't look as hard at things as they could. There was a lot of indicators that Ackroyd was getting away with a lot of physical and sexual abuse with Richanda. Now, the way that it's told in the documentary is not the way that it's told in mainstream media, and that is that there's a confrontation about Ackroyd molesting Richanda, who is 13 years old, and the next day, she vanishes. This is what makes them look at the old cases. This is what makes them go back. And in fact, what happens is this case is a missing child's case and it makes its way anyway to the DA because this all happens in 1990. Richanda goes missing in 1990. So there's a big gap in time between the Kay Turner case, which is December of 1978. And Richanda is, is in July, it's July 10th of 1990 when she goes missing. So it's a very long period of time between these two cases, but essentially the Lynn County who district attorney who was over uh, Richanda's missing persons case uh, is a guy named Doug Martini. He actually calls um, at the time he was not the district attorney. He was assistant district, district attorney. I believe he calls the investigator on um, some of the older cases down in Jefferson County. And he just says, you know, are you guys familiar with John Ackroyd? And the investigator in the documentary, he says, yeah, I picked up the phone. I heard him. He asked me if I knew who John Ackroyd was. And I said, yeah, he killed Kay Turner. So they knew, but when Richanda goes missing, they really start looking at him. Now it takes them a little bit. They end up uh, from the time she goes missing in 1990, it takes them about three years to really get an idea of what's going on with Ackroyd. And essentially they arrest him. His, his relationship had ended uh, basically the day Richanda went missing. His relationship with Linda ended. He moves in with his mom and he ends up being uh, arrested, but not for Richanda's case. He gets arrested and he gets charged for Kay Turner's case. He gets indicted by a Jefferson, Jefferson County grand jury. They go after him in 1992 and they go after Roger Dale Beck. And in October of 1993, he's convicted of aggra aggravated murder for rape, murder, and shooting uh, Kay Turner, of Kay Turner. He gets a life sentence. Beck, who had told his family about it, people in his family about it, he ends up being found guilty in November 1993 of her murder at a separate trial, same county, and he gets put away as well. I'm not 100% sure of Beck's involvement. I believe he is involved. I don't know how involved. But I will say this. There are further... So there's 46 cases that women have gone missing in this area, but they do link him pretty directly to a 1992 double missing person case. That is not a missing person's case. Now um, it, it is two young women who were murdered. Their names were Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson. They were on a camping trip with Melissa Sanders family in 1992 at Beverly beach state park. They were bored and they decided to go hitchhiking and they were presumed to have had friends bring them back to Sweet Home. They lived off of Highway 20, which is the whole reason that we got on this, is Highway 20 is sort of this, you know, weaving road here that, that ties all this together. They were 
regulars at the same restaurant Aykroyd was at. But what really got him was co-workers of Aykroyd remembered him coming into the highway shop. When I say shop, it's like an automotive shop. And he had come in one night and he was covered in blood and he kind of blew off his co-workers. And when they asked him like why he was covered in blood and he said that he had hit a deer and he had to gut him out and then he chucked the carcass off uh, along the highway, which the co-workers didn't think a whole lot of it because they thought Ackroyd was kind of weird and would probably do something like that, like during a shift. But at the end of it, they started putting the time frame together and it ties him in time to, they, they believe that it was the night of those two girls, Melissa Sanders and Sheila Swanson going missing. Now their bodies were found off an old logging highway off of highway 20. If you just look at like the little area there around where they went missing, there's five teenagers that went missing between 1984 and 1995. Melissa and Sheila's bodies get found about a month before Aykroyd is indicted and arrested for the murder of Kay Turner. But he's decided at this point, he doesn't want to talk to the police anymore. And there is no forensic evidence that ties Aykroyd to the murder of the girls but they did figure out that there were witnesses saying that Akron had met the girls earlier and offered them a ride. And this was not the night of, this is seeing them hitchhiking in the months previous. And he had invited them to a couple of different parties. Ackroyd was seen by witnesses parked on the logging road off highway 20, where the girls' bodies were, three different times between the time they went missing in spring of 1992 and the time he was arrested in October, 1993. Cause you have to remember after Rochanda went missing, cops were watching him. So what did you think about that one? Do you think he probably did that? Well, I, I thought that- if they saw him sitting on that side road, he is sitting there reliving having killed those girls the same way he did Kay Turner. Well, uh, well I, yeah, I agree with that that line of thinking. Um, I am, I wasn't sure. And I, and I meant to look this up and I ran out of time, uh, before we started recording today, but I heard that that case was closed. It is closed. It was reopened in 2012. Ron Benson, who was a, he was a, he was not a cop, but he was an investigator. He and Linda Snow got involved in that investigation. They noted some similarities They had enough evidence for a grand jury, but they felt like it was going to be too expensive to move forward. That's what they say in the documentary. They say it was so expensive that they didn't feel like they could do it. Well, right. Um, But my question was, I I wasn't 100% sure. Was it closed because they felt like John Ackroyd did it? Yeah. So their intentions were that they were going to take it to a grand jury to indict him. But since he was already in prison, and because it's such a, it's such a cash-strapped area, basically his boss talked to him about how expensive it was going to be, and they sort of decided that they weren't going to like chase it down. They were going to close it out, and they were going to tag Ackroyd's name on it. And I didn't agree with all of that, but they did it anyways. Right, and... Okay, that was my confusion there. I, I am aware that the whole grand jury thing, I, I remember hearing that. But then, like, one of the last things I heard was, you know, the case was closed. And I was like, well, that's really strange. And I wasn't entirely clear. Now, I don't know if he did it or not. Um, I, I, To me, the documentary left me going, well, I've got more to look into about this, right? Um, that's that's what it did to me too. But I wanted to talk to you about it because I I did like it. I think people should watch it. I agree. the The bottom line on this is this is a this is a really good example of somebody who is a, in my opinion, he's a serial killer. I didn't really know a lot about John Arthur Aykroyd. I feel like the documentary plus my own research is pointing me that way. I do think he killed those girls, the two girls. Um, I wasn't 100% positive that he did. And, you know, the Ghost of Highway 20, which is what this is about. It's not just about 
uh, John Aykroyd, by the way, although this documentary is, um, there's a lot more commonalities he has with a bunch of unidentified bodies found out there in the fact that like he was sort of leaving them out instead of burying them, including Swamp Mountain Jane Doe. Um, and, and I believe she's unidentified to this day. She, but that she was found in Sweet Home, Oregon. Um, it was before this. It was in Ju- it was in July of 1976. What did, what did you think? Like overall, like what do you think of uh, uh, John Ackroyd? Do you think he killed these? I would say he raped Marlene. I think he killed Kay Turner. I think he killed Richanda. Um, which he does plead out to. The plea deal was sealed. We had we had questions in an earlier episode where we were like, "What are they talking about?" Because it was a really weird thing the prosecutor did. But they, it was another case where he agreed to plead no contest to it. They sealed the deal until after his death, but then he died shortly thereafter, and they made it public. Right. And so that is covered in the documentary, and it brings up some very interesting um, aspects of like the victims' lives and, well, uh, Richanda's uh, life, right? Yeah. Richanda's mom is on the show, her brother, two of her school friends, um, and they have a lot to say about her. She was a 13-year-old girl. um, And uh, there was a confrontation. Uh, Their father, who, um, you know, wasn't John Aykroyd, they'd gone to visit him and, uh, you know, uh, it was brought to somebody brought it to his attention and then he kind of confronted the kids, I guess. And then there was a fallout between Richanda and her, her biological father and she went back home. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and her brother had stayed. Um, and essentially the documentary sort of like touches on it, but it, it also is apparent to me, and I'm sure you and any other viewer as well, like uh, the the brother and sister were, you know, sort of a team. And it seemed like they were both, without question, based on the friends that are interviewed, they were abused children, more than likely at the hands of John Ackroyd, right? Correct. And without her brother there, it was like, once again... John Ackroyd seized an opportunity, right? Because she was there alone. And he she had stayed home and he had gone to work and then came back home and then, you know, she's never seen again. He convinces the mom not to call the police until the following day. And they play this like heart-wrenching 911 call, and that 911 operator is like well, why haven't you called earlier? And she's like, well, I thought like you had to wait for 24 hours. And the 911 call, uh, the 911 operator is like, well, no, not with children. Right. And so her mother was clueless about everything that was occurring. She doesn't uh, even acknowledge really uh, that they were abused by him. Did you? I don't know. Yeah, she she flat out says she didn't know. Now her brother knew. Um, In fact, when he found out she was missing, he panicked. Uh, It it doesn't really say what their age difference was, but it wasn't much. I don't think just you know a few years. Yeah, they were close in age. Okay, and so he was sort of her protector, and so he's about to get out of jail for his. Uh, for Kay Turner's uh, murder. And Byron alone, without his anyone there to support him, um, I believe his wife was there, but, um, you know, his parents have checked out of this whole thing. And, you know, uh, in the interest of just sort of being neutral, I'm assuming they couldn't deal with it, right? Richanda has never been found, Right. She went missing that day and she vanished off the face of the earth and she's never been found. And so um, Byron, having lived the life he did and experienced what he experienced in his life, um, he's faced with this choice. And the choice he has to make is to let John Aykroyd plead no contest to, uh, was it her murder or just the abduction? 
Um, they don't specify. The plea deal was basically for the abduction. Okay. And so, and, and what that does is it, it means that um, John Ackroyd has agreed that he will basically stay in jail for the rest of his life. Um, however, Which, it's... Right. I'm sorry? However, he... Not long is what I said. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I said not long, but yeah. Well, right. But he didn't know that, I don't think. But and, and, but he's pleading no contest, right? It, it, that's not a guilty plea. However, and, and Byron talks about it on the documentary, he struggled with, you know, well, you know, should I do this? Is this justice for her? Like, is it enough? And essentially, at the end of the day, he says, this guy can't get out of prison. I can't take the chance that he's ever going to walk the streets again and no contest it is, right? Which is, it gives you sort of an idea of what losing your 13-year-old sister uh, to the man that's your stepfather who's supposed to be, you know, supporting and protecting you. I mean, he he recognized the significance in, you know, saying, okay, plead no contest to it, but you're never getting out, and that's what I care about. Um, because it, that man was dangerous. He, There's no question he would have done it again. And it... He, I, I don't know what makes people like him tick, so to speak. Of course, he's dead now, so he's not ticking at all. But I now one thing I would I am going to see what I can kind of dig up on. I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot um, when you get into these like much older cases. It's not like there's a ton of you know stuff you can go look up on people. And, but I I would like to know more about his life, like before sort of where it picks up, right? Because we pick up the story with his first victim. Right. Uh, And so we don't know a whole lot like we did with some of the other um, killers that we've talked about, right? And part of our study in these guys, whether or not he ends up being a serial killer to me in my mind, there's no question that there's enough evidence here to support that statement, right? Um, and the, you know, genesis, if you will, of these guys is very interesting, whatever we can find out. And so I am interested in sort of seeing that. I am, you know, I, I feel like people who experience certain things like Byron Pickle with his sister, you know, he knew enough based on the years and years and years it took to get justice for his sister that like, you know, you have to give and take some. And so, you know, he is largely responsible for the fact that John Ackroyd died in prison as opposed to getting parole for Kay Turner's murder. Right. He is. And I think it, uh, I think it's, I think it's the only thing he could do. I have a lot of questions about this. It opens up a whole new mystery for me. I just thought it was interesting that it, you know, it comes about in the middle of us researching this Epana stuff. The timeline is similar, very different reactions from the US side of things and the Canadian side of things. But what we're left with is a bunch of unsolved missing persons cases and a bunch of unsolved cases that happen in this guy's orbit. I want to know more about him now. And like, you know, was Marlene a fluke or was she really the first victim? Like, there's so many things that I want to know from the perspective of like, like, what did this guy do? Um, I would encourage people to check out the documentary. I know I'll be going to do some research on John Aykroyd now that I've kind of dug into him, even though it's in the middle of us researching 10 other things. Um, And I do think it'll come back up for me and I'm sure it'll come back up for you. Um, I would like to see, um, and I haven't looked, maybe you have, I would really like um, for Richanda to be found. That was a it, big one for me. It is. So she would actually be a little older than me. Uh, not much, right, but a little bit. And I never heard of her case. The, the documentary, uh, the way that it's done you know, it is about the victims, largely. Marlene makes a few comments that are just heartbreaking. But essentially, she says that, um, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this documentary maker, uh, the team that did this, they were the first to ever approach her. And 
uh, they typically don't name rape victims. And at the end, like, you know, they're, they're wanting her, you know, to say, well, you know, should we name you or not? She's like, absolutely. She's like, I want everybody to know, yeah. you know, what this happened. And, and her thought is to bring awareness, not necessarily because John Aykroyd's still out there. You know, he's not, he's dead. But it is to bring awareness to situations where, like, when something's happening, maybe it would save somebody, essentially. If you see things happening that, um, like in her case, this guy gives her a ride, she gets attacked, and then it's ignored. Now, I don't, I don't know that that would happen now. But a lot of the investigators clearly have regret, right? They they talk about it, and then she is very she's heartbroken over this young girl who, you know, she she was just basically snuffed out at you know a very young age. And for me, as an adult female, it it really sort of highlights. Uh, at least from the perspective that he was her stepfather and he did this and, you know, he does eventually plead no contest to it. But for the most part, he got away with it, right? Yeah, yeah, he got off really easy. It highlights that marginalized... Now, they were poor, um, but, you know, there's nothing had happened in uh, Rashanda's life yet that would make her fit into any category of anything, right? She was a kid. And so... It, it's kind of the vilest of the vile, right? When you've got um, a grown man uh, doing what he did to her, making her disappear. And the worst part of it is with the friends talking, she knew this was going to happen to her. Oh, absolutely. She knew. And what she must have gone through um, is just... It's it pulls at my heart because you know she, there was nothing she could do. She she couldn't you know she couldn't fix the situation for herself. And you know it, it, there's a line between getting involved in other people's lives and not doing anything. And it seems to me like this could have been very easily avoided, and it wasn't. And nobody could help her every single adult in the situation that she found herself in and she sought help from nobody helped her. No, they didn't. It is an absolutely tragic story. I encourage people to go and watch it. Uh, And they'll come back up for us. Do you have uh, anything else you want to throw out about it? Not right now. No, but I I do feel like we will, um, there's, you know, we'll talk some more about this as I get, if, you know, I, I do more research and it seems like there's more relevant stuff. Agreed. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Thank you.